Hello and welcome to a new episode of the Talking Indonesia podcast. My name is Ken Stiawan from Melbourne University's Asia Institute and today's podcast focuses on the Indonesian media. Press freedom is often regarded as one of Indonesia's biggest achievements in the post-authoritarian period. But how free is the press and what effects do media convergence and ownership have on journalists? How have new digital technologies changed Indonesia's media landscape? Here to talk about these topics is Dr. Ross Tapsell, who is lecturer in the College of Asia and the Pacific at the Australian National University. He is also one of the conveners of this year's Indonesia Update, which focuses on Indonesia's digital revolution. Ross, welcome to Talking Indonesia. Thank you, Ken. Ross, as I just mentioned, the lifting of restrictions on the press is often regarded as one of the biggest achievements in, of Indonesia in the post-authoritarian period. Do you agree? How free is the Indonesian press actually? Oh, yes, of course. And, and as you say, politicians, including uh, Australian prime ministers, are very quick to uh, compliment Indonesia on its free and, and vibrant press. And when you do compare it to the New Order era, um, there is an uh, amazing capacity for journalists to now report on uh, corruption and mismanagement and uh, and uh, various other infrastructure disasters that could never be um, reported on under the new order. Um, however, of course, there are still uh, very much topics which uh, uh, topics which are very difficult uh, to report on. In particular, uh, military involvement in the outer regions of Indonesia. Um, and so, for that reason, when you look at say some of these international uh, uh, rankings or surveys of press freedom, Indonesia uh, still ranks as partly free. Uh, in the recent Freedom House uh, 2016 rankings, Indonesia was ranked 96 out of around 200 countries. And that's mostly because of the difficulties of reporting from Papua, where journalists operate in a sub-national authoritarian uh, regime there in Papua. So. Uh, it is important to not only see the Indonesian media as, as Jakarta-based um, mudracking and vibrant reporting on corruption, but also to, to think about the, the larger archipelago and the difficulties in, in some of these outer regions. And for that reason, uh, Indonesia's ranking has really not improved much since uh, 2001 when it was ranked 99 to 2016 when it's ranked 96. So we see increased freedom of the press, but also that journalists, particularly in areas such as Papua, work under very difficult and sometimes dangerous circumstances. Does that mean that press freedom is not wholeheartedly supported? Well, there's a number of ways that they rank these. One of them is is uh, intimidation and deaths and beatings mm. of journalists, which is more the Reporters Without Borders um, uh, methodology. And so when you hear of uh, Papuan journalists who are uh, threatened and intimidated and followed by, uh, by the military or intelligence, uh, that will always bring down uh, or, or make difficult for Indonesia to improve in, in these rankings. Um, so it is at that local level and there's been a number of high profile cases where journalists have, have been murdered. Um, it, it is at that local level that, that is struggling to uh, improve Indonesia's rankings there. So you're saying that the local situation can be very different from the general national trend. What are some of the particular challenges of local media in Indonesia? 
One of the interesting aspects of the local press in Indonesia um, is is what they can comment on and criticise. And so, again, once you look at some of these, and we'll talk about this later, I'm sure, this kind of multi-oligarchic media system that that Indonesia has, uh, one of the difficulties of the local media in Indonesia is that it's very much beholden to government advertising. So, and this has increased uh, under the um, decentralization policies. So really a lot of local newspapers uh, and a lot of local radio stations and, and television stations are surviving on the advertising funds that come from local government to promote uh, their local government initiatives, which means they're very much beholden to reporting positively and find it very difficult to report critically of uh, local government corruption or mismanagement. So, in fact, if local government pulled out of um, all advertising for print media, most of the local print media in Indonesia would just collapse, um, which is a, a kind of consequence of, of the, uh, the difficulties in now in advertising in print media worldwide, um, but also gives you some indication of, of the difficulties of being able to report on government in local um, provinces and districts. Now, so you're, you're mentioning here that the local media is very much dependent on advertising of local governments. Now, how does that then work at a national level? Where does the money come from? So Indonesia, national media is a multi-oligarchic media system. In other words, there are key uh, business players, um, elites, uh, oligarchs, if you'd like to call them that, um, who control the, most of the Indonesian um, media companies. So on the one hand, this multi-oligarchic system means that if you were to consume all news at a national level, you would actually be able to get quite a vast array of commentary and criticism and, and news and analysis. For example, in the uh, Lupindo mud flow in East Java, you're probably not going to get uh, a lot of reporting on the uh, victims of the mud flow in, say, Viva News or in TV1 or in the Surabaya Post, which is all owned by the uh, politician Abrizal Bakri, um, who have, whose company, of course, was linked to the, the mud flow disaster. But what you will do is you will uh, get coverage of that in Dalan Iskan's media, such as Jawa Post or Surya Palo's TV station in Metro TV, um, which, of course, is very much critical of Abriz al-Bakri. So, you know, as I said, in a, in a public sphere, um, you, you can actually get um, quite a lot of news and information. And while it is true that, that oligarchs compete with each other over political power, um, at the same time, owners are all successful business leaders and their media tends to report in a pro-business direction. Um, so when you think about sort of how an observer of the Indonesian media might see regular stories, um, you, you'd often see that these big... Um, media companies attribute Indonesia's upper and middle class um, upward mobility to a pro-business mindset. And so in terms of media content, this is played out in various ways. Um, negative attitudes towards pro-poor government policies which affect business profits, such as, for example, wage, uh, raising the minimum wage, or negative co coverage of other anti-establishment practices, such as protests or labor union campaigns. Another example might be technocratic ministers who are seen to understand business interests within their portfolio 
um, are encouraged over other politicians who might question the role of big business in contributing to rising inequality. So uh, while it is true that you, you can get uh, a lot of news on various oligarchs, generally speaking, most of the national media conglomerates all look the same. They're the same in their business structure. They're the same in their trying to be a national conglomerate. And they're all multi-platform, which means they're not just a TV station anymore or a newspaper. They're all various different platforms. So media owners also often have clear political interests. How has this manifested itself? Yes, and this was certainly played out in the 2014 election. Um, and we can certainly say that the media coverage was far more partisan in 2014 than it was in 2009 or 2004. That is, of course, partly of the way that the election played out in two candidates and very different candidates. But it also gave us an indication of how media ownership has become far more of a concern for um, press freedom advocates in Indonesia in the digital era. And this is largely because of the increasing conglomeration of media, uh, the increasing concentration of media companies, and the generally rising wealth and political importance of media owners in that time period. So if you're talking about the increasing conglomeration of media, this also has something to do with what you earlier mentioned about the multimedia platforms? Yeah, so as a, as a sort of general rule, what you've seen is that in the digital era, um, media companies realise that they can't just be a one-platform one company. They just can't be a, a newspaper. And it, this is even the case for, say, an organisation like Tempo, um, which has been very successful um, both in its journalism and also in financially with its weekly magazine. And even Tempo realised uh, at the turn of the 21st century that they had to try to be a multi-platform company. They started a daily newspaper, Koran Tempo. They started to partner with uh, Radio 68H. They started Tempo TV, which ultimately uh, failed. Um, and they realised that to... Um, survive in the digital era, they couldn't just survive as a weekly magazine. So this is happening with Compass and Compass TV and Compass.com and uh, C CNN Indonesia is now part of Transcorp and Detik.com. And you are seeing this increasing conglomeration of media companies uh, for that reason. Um, but if they control, so there's one, you know, one owner that controls not only print media, but also other forms mm -hmm. of media, doesn't that also mean that there is, in fact, um, less diversity? Yes, as a general rule, we can say that um, big media is getting bigger in the digital era and smaller and medium-sized media is dying out. And I've, you know, been looking at this over a number of years. And when you look at, say, um, uh news organizations, for example, like Republica, um, which was once considered quite a diverse uh, voice for um, pro-Islamic, uh, you know, or strongly Islamic believed Indonesians, um, particularly Jakartans. And really what's happened to Republica is it has uh, declined in its diversity of content and it's also been bought up by a major media mogul uh, in Eric Tohir um, in order to save it. Um, so the, the concern is that, yes, the fragmentation of the Internet has caused an enormous array of uh, information and a diverse array of views that you are able to access online. There's no questioning that. Um, but industrial journalism remains the dominant paradigm where elites exert their power. 
How do media owners, who, as you earlier said, often have clear political interests, influence journalists? Do journalists, for instance, engage in self-censorship? There's two aspects there. The first would be on individual journalists. And of course, um, what we can say is that um, a lot of how journalists are directed uh, in terms of what stories they should cover. So, for example, in the lead up to this 2014 election, you had some media companies saying, do not cover Jokowi, while you had other media companies saying, um, you know, do, do not cover Proboa. Um, and of course, you know, within those media companies, when politicians are uh, when media owners are running for politics or are heads of political parties, what you see is journalists assigned to cover those politicians um, regularly and favourably. Uh, so that that's one aspect. And of course, various negative stories uh, about um, uh, certain politicians are either accentuated or, or reduced. Um, and generally speaking, uh, the media companies themselves have become more dynastic. And what I mean by that is that often um, family members are put into positions of power within these media companies. Often sons um, of, the, of the owners are, are very much there. This doesn't mean that they're always affecting news content on a daily basis, but it does lead to a more dynastic family structure. Do you have any examples of that? One example might be um, in the Abriz al-Bakri uh, company there was, and this was very public, when Abriz al-Bakri's son, Ardi Bakri, sent an email to the chief editors within these companies and said, if you don't support the family first, then you're out. And that led to resignations from chief editors, um, which, which they, like Uni Lubis and Nezar Patria, which they, um, you know, publicly came out and said why they uh, left the company. So, so having a family member within these media companies does lead to, to some problems there, as you would expect. Uh, the second aspect might be um, about the audience. You know, what is the audience thinking here? How does it, how does it affect what the audience thinks? Um, and that's, that's far more difficult because we're not, um, we're, we're, you know, it's always difficult to understand the effects of media and it's something we're still working on. But certainly when you looked at the 2014 election, when you looked at election night um, and you saw this coverage on TV1, which was that um, uh, Proboa had won the election and the quick counts were, were falsified and distorted, of course, towards Proboa. And yet TV1 um, clearly um, won over in its competitors in terms of viewership that evening. So the majority of Indonesians who wanted news about the election tuned in to highly partisan, in this case, false news reports. So the question is, you know, why? Why? Um, if they wanted clear and uh, objective reporting, TV1 would probably be the last place you would go. Yet most Indonesians tuned into that on, on election night. So were they aware of the bias towards Proboa? Do they just like TV1 content? Um, or did they know exactly what was going on and um, were switching uh, to other channels as well? Um, evidence suggests not. So it's a difficult one to figure out. The false reporting, in this case by TV1, raises the question of regulations as well as the role of media watchdogs, such as the Press Council and the Broadcasting Commission. Are these bodies effective at all? Yeah, it's a good question. And, and in fact, we're entering a crucial period for a number of these regulatory bodies because they're changing uh, staff. They're, they're regenerating because of the 2016-2017 um, period. So, you know, a number of broadcasting commissioners have just been elected. 
uh, and will move to b become part of the KPI um, for 2017. As a general summary, these institutions are very weak. And in, in fact, by the by, Indonesia's public broadcasters are also very weak. There's very little funding being delivered to these organisations. Um, and I would argue that that's largely a deliberate underfunding um, because it's in the interest of the political and business elites to make these institutions weak. And when you think about it, if you're a media owner, do you want a strong, powerful uh, public broadcaster which can compete with you in terms of news and information? Of course not. You look at the same example in the US and it's a very similar system where PBS is, is dreadfully underfunded and no a very low audience rate. The same thing for um, Indonesia's TV station, TVRI, um, where basically people are not tuning in to watch it because it's it's really quite um, underfunded and it's it's quite boring news, frankly. Um, with regard to Dewan Press or the Press Council um, and the Broadcasting Commission, they too have um, become somewhat toothless. Uh, and again, largely, I would argue, because the Indonesian elites are not particularly interested in funding these organisations or giving them power where they can regulate. And the same argument occurs in Australia as well, Ken. You know, you, you would often hear uh, the Australian or the Murdoch press uh, vehemently opposing any uh, decisions made by the Press Council on the grounds that it's hindering press freedom. Is there an explanation for the position of media owners that regulations and watchdog organisations actually hinder their development? One of the big difficulties for Indonesia, big difficulties for Indonesia are that, is that a lot of Indonesians do remember those days where the Ministry of Information would censor copy and would uh, re revoke publishing licences of newspapers which reported critically of the government or the military on race and religion and so on. So a lot of Indonesians don't want to see um, strong government institutions, quite understandably. But uh, whenever there's, and in fact, whenever other media organisations um, are looking to take on the press council, they say, oh, this is just a harking back to the new order period. But what was interesting in the lead up to the Indonesian election in 2014 was that you had some of these really beacons of, 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 of free press and beacons of, of quality journalism, such as Tempo, arguing that various TV stations should have had their licenses revoked. And what we need or what Indonesia needs is a stronger regulatory body, such as the Broadcasting Commission or the Press Council, which can crack down on this um, sensationalist and partisan reporting. So it's going to be an interesting period from 2016 onward to see how they negotiate this. My guess is there's not going to be much change. Another problem is that many regulations are simply not implemented. How has Indonesian civil society responded to that? Various NGOs and press freedom advocates have tried to go to the courts and, um, you know, try to uh, make it uh, certain as to how rules can be, can be implemented. And that it also includes, say, owning more than uh, one TV station or owning two TV stations and a radio station. But for the most part, the private industry leads the way in um, uh, how the industry is shaped and they go ahead despite uh, weak government intervention. So that private industry leads the way, that's got something to do with capital, I imagine. 
Because you earlier mentioned that the government isn't really investing in its public broadcasting. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, and and quite simply, you know, the the, the better, more innovative companies are the private companies, yeah. as you would expect, um, because they're earning more money. They can hire better journalists, better editors, better visionaries, better digital marketers, um, while the public broadcasting is uh, very journalists are very poorly paid. A lot of the people who are in positions of authority within public broadcasting. Uh, old dinosaurs from the Suharto era who are still kind of seeing TV Airy as a as a TV station which broadcasts presidential um, speeches and ceremonies, which of course Indonesians turn off en masse on these things. They don't, they didn't want to see this anymore. They're, they they're far more attuned to the more stylistic and uh, let's say entertaining coverage of say Metro TV or TV yeah. One. Media corporations and regulatory bodies are all located in Jakarta. Isn't that problematic for the Indonesian media landscape? Yes, absolutely. And this is, in fact, a growing concern in the digital era, largely because the business model of these conglomerates is to have an enormous um, base in central Jakarta yeah. and buy up local TV stations uh, in each province and broadcast that news, you know, funnel all this news into the the one organization or the one ecosystem, as they call it, in Jakarta, and broadcast this throughout the archipelago. And this has um, benefits in terms of efficiency of news gathering, so so there are financial reasons for this. But it also means that the elites in Jakarta, and in particular media owners, are going to have greater reach as to the information and the stories that they put out. So when you think of, say, Hari Tano Sadibio and his MNC group, if he's broadcasting around to 34 different provinces in Indonesia, but all of it is news about Hari Tano and his movements in Jakarta, that allows for um, greater coverage of his political party, Perindo. So this is the the sort of the business model. It's it's not a new idea per se. Jawa Post Group, of course, uh, bought up a number of local um, newspapers throughout the archipelago. Around 140 different local newspapers are all owned by the big conglomerate Jawa Post Group. But now we're seeing it in television and radio. Digital technology is increasingly important to media corporations, but in many areas of Indonesia, internet access remains poor. You've just mentioned that it's in these areas that big media corporations become increasingly active. In the absence of government investment, is there a drive from these private companies to digitalize Indonesia? The Indonesia's internet penetration is officially only around 30%. Um, having said that, the prevalence of mobile phones now, and this includes in, in outer regions, and in fact, I was reading Elizabeth Pisani's book uh, recently on uh, Indonesia, etc., as she traveled around the archipelago and she made the comment that millions of Indonesians are on $2 a day and are on Facebook. And I think that's a, a kind of interest, a, a nice nice way to think about the changing nature of media consumption in Indonesia, the, the rise of Chinese-made um, Blackberries and uh, cheap handphones to uh, the vast archipelago and the, the um, way that 2G is now um, increasingly part of the way that young people 
in, in, engage with the internet. So what this means is they're not necessarily, you know, on on Google and, and getting a lot of information, but they are on Facebook and they are messaging and they are on WhatsApp and these kind of um, uh, apps which allow for faster access of news and information. What effects do the popularity of social media and the use of mobile phones have on the ways that news is produced? It's a good question. Let, let, let me just uh, highlight two points. The first one is to, to think about the way in which um, people consume news via mobile phones. And when you think about the, a lot of the social media usage is in big cities, um, so it is urban areas and it is younger people who are on these social media sites. And most of them are highly active during the commute. And of course, you can imagine in Jakarta with its uh, sometimes four or five hour commutes in, uh, in enormous uh, traffic, um, that this has meant that places like Jakarta and platforms like Twitter are now highly popular. Um, so what we're seeing is that people are accessing news via social media platforms, but when you actually narrow down and see what kind of news are they looking at, um, they're not coming from, say, citizen journalism sites. They're not coming from, um, uh, you know, blogs or the Huffington Post examples or, you know, Coconuts Jakarta or these kind of things which are grassroots media. Most of the stuff being shared and most of the um, news sites which people subscribe to via their social media sites are mainstream news sites like detic.com, compass.com. So that still shows that even though, yes, there is this kind of emancipatory role of social media and people can produce their own content, the news, that hard news that they're getting is often from mainstream conglomerates. The second point to make about it is the changing nature of advertising in the social media um, era or the digital era. And of course, what a m number of large Indonesian companies are worried about is that uh, increasingly online advertising goes to multinational companies like Google and Facebook and Twitter. And so what they're saying is that they're not making a lot of money, as is the case elsewhere in the world. They're not making a lot of money out of um, the online advertising space. So most of that money goes to, to Facebook and Google. Does this also mean that Indonesians mainly access the media through their mobile phones? Despite all of the excitement and hype about the internet and social media, the dominant platform in which 80% uh, of Indonesians watch on a weekly basis is television. Okay. And it's free-to-air television. So that's television remains king. And when you look at these large conglomerates, the ones that have been most successful financially in becoming multi-platform businesses are the ones that started out in television because they've mm. still managed to get so much advertising dollars uh, in the post-reformasi period. However, as I've said, things are changing and they're changing rapidly. The average age of Indonesia's, Indonesians is 28 um, compared to, say, 38 in Australia or, or 40 in Britain. So young people have different kind of media consumption patterns, and a lot of these companies realise that the dominance of television in the era of Netflix and uh, online streaming and so on, which is coming up, um, is not going to uh, remain. So while for the time being TV remains dominant, Indonesia's media landscape is rapidly changing. To wrap up this podcast... What do you think the future of Indonesia's media looks like? Of course, if I had uh, really substantial, uh, groundbreaking um, thoughts on this, I would probably not tell it to talking Indonesia and I'd 
more likely sell it to Rupert Murdoch or uh, or Abrizal Bakri can and um, make my millions. But um, sadly, shame. I'm I, you know my the best I can the best I can muster, I guess, is to think about as other scholars have done to think about the increasingly networked society in which uh, digitalization is allowing us to be uh, become connected to and the changing nature of, of the information society. So the point here is that this isn't just affecting news. This is other industries. And you only need to think about the phenomenon of Gojek in Indonesia and the way that that's affecting the transport system or Uber um, and the increasing way in which applications, mobile phone applications, are going to be our first port of call when we want to do something, either, you know, to sell a product or to take a taxi or to uh, book a hotel or so on. And so what these media companies are doing is that they're trying to t be the first industry to really tap into this um, increasingly networked society. So what they're saying is we're not just going to be a media company anymore. We're not just a content provider of news. We have to be a larger digital ecosystem which encourages people to get out their credit card and pay for things online. And then that will be a way to fund our news service because at current uh, statistics, young people, and this goes for everywhere around the world, young people are not willing to get out their credit card and pay for news directly. Most people don't subscribe to news sites and they don't want to because they have a vast array of information. So news companies and media companies have to find other ways to get people to pay for things online. And that's what they're doing now to inherently uh, connect their, say, e-commerce sites uh, into their media companies or their startups or think of Tokopedia and Bukalapak and these kind of organisations. So that will be, I think, a, an increasing sort of conglomeration of, of digital businesses uh, in Indonesia. Thanks, Ross, for being on Talking Indonesia. Thanks, Ken. That was Dr. Ross Tapsel of the ANU on the media in Indonesia. The next Talking Indonesia podcast, hosted by my colleague Dave McRae, will be available on the 25th of August. And a reminder, you can find the entire Talking Indonesia podcast series at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog or subscribe via iTunes or Stitcher. You may also be interested in the newly launched podcast on China, hosted by Graham Smith from the Asia Institute Center for Contemporary Chinese Studies. You can find the Little Red podcast on iTunes and Facebook. Many thanks for listening. Until next time, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast.